Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is a very special American guest, Edward Isaac DeVere. Now, if you subscribe to The Atlantic, you'll already be aware of Isaac's fantastic writing, but he's got a new book out called Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. It is superb. And I've put a link in the blurb in the show notes where you can buy it. There's also another link there, um, if you just scroll down and have a look at the blurb, and it's to a charity page, uh, a Virgin Money Giving page, um, and it's because a listener of the show, Jeremy Daubney, has been in touch. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's a it's a great email. It's also a bit sad, um, so uh, fair warning. But he, he got in touch. He said um, he's, he's 19, and he's just completed an eight-week sponsored bike tour of Britain. And this is what he says. My dad, Giles, devastatingly passed away of a brain tumour in 2017. This was then followed by my mum's death of motor neurone disease seven months later. I'm currently between school and university and wanted to turn this rough set of cards into something positive. With just a tent and a few essential supplies, I set off on my bike, raising money for the Brain Tumor Charity and the MND Association. Jeremy, first of all, I'm so sorry um, to hear that. I can't imagine how difficult it is to lose one parent, let alone both, when you're so young and those deaths coming so close together. It's just terrible. But you're obviously turning that into a real positive, and that is hugely inspirational. Um, now, the next line is great. It says, the gimmick of my challenge was searching for Britain's best breakfast. Well, you, you found the right guy to um, to help promote your, uh, your campaign, Jeremy, because that is right up my street. He said, therefore, uh, the campaign is called the Tour de Full English. I can now confirm that Britain's best breakfast is in the Little Welsh Cafe on the Pembrokeshire coast. I mean, the irony of the best full English, not even being in England, Jeremy, I'm sure wasn't lost on you. He said, when I found a quiet country lane I could blast my phone speakers out of, I often shoved on an episode of the political party for some company on the road. Uh, well, Jeremy, I'm delighted that this show brought you some company. I mean, occasionally you do see people cycling around with a Bluetooth speaker or something, usually blaring out music. I've never heard anyone blare out a podcast. The amount of people that have played this podcast on a bike, on a on a, on a ghetto blaster or a, or a Bluetooth speaker, you're probably the only person who's ever done that, Jeremy. Um Anyway, uh, thank you. I'm, and I'm glad this podcast brought you some company on, on such an incredible mission that you've done. And obviously, for two fantastic causes. So I put a link uh, in the show notes. You can see it there if you scroll down. It's virginmoneygiving.com slash English. I've donated to Jeremy. And if you would like to, um, uh, you know, that would be a good use of uh, any spare money you have knocking around because he's obviously a really impressive young man. And he's doing this in very difficult circumstances. And on top of that, I can't think of a better reason to cycle around Britain than trying to find the best uh, full English. And Jeremy, please do get in touch and let us know what the name of that Welsh cafe is on the Pembrokeshire coast, because I'm sure lots of us who listen to this would like to go. Um, so 
thank you for that, Jeremy. And I, and I hope a few of the listeners donate as well. So you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Usually people get in touch to talk about either unusual places they've seen politicians or embarrassing encounters you've had with them. And Ross Quinn has uh, put his own spin on this brief. And this email is called Boring Encounters with Politicians. Now, surely that is going to be the most likely because that's probably a bit unfair to politicians who I broadly and generally defend, but there can be a bit of a letdown occasionally. Um, anyway, Ross says, I've tried for a couple of weeks to try and pin down an exact time, but I can only narrow it down to pre-2011. Wow. I was at the Hibernian FC club shop to avail myself, and if I remember correctly, my brother, a present, of that season's new top, and get it printed. And who should I see there but the bastion of anti-capitalist feeling Colin Fox, the ex-Scottish Socialist Party, MSP, and current spokesperson, buying a top and getting it printed too. After a small chat with him saying how I wished him well as he'd recently lost his seat and I have tendencies of that wing, he left. That, of course, may be the most monotonous meeting. <laughs> Quite sure he said himself he wasn't even a fan. So what was he doing in the Hibernian club shop? Oh, well, I suppose he might have been buying it for someone else, um, which would explain it. You know, it's, it's one of the two, isn't it? Either you're a fan and you're buying it for yourself or you're buying it for someone else. I mean, they, they really are the only two options. But um, thanks for that, Ross. Email your uh, awkward or indeed boring encounters with politicians to politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. On to today's guest. Now, sometimes I have guests on who have books out and um, sometimes I have guests on who've uh, I mean, obviously, a lot of my guests have written books because of politicians, a lot of them have written autobiographies or whatever it is. I've written a book as well, of course, Politically Homeless, in case uh, some of you out there still haven't bought it. The link is forever in the uh, show notes of this podcast. Um, so sometimes um, when people have a book to promote, I think that's a really great for this podcast because I look, my main outgoing um, apart from bills, is buying political books. I have a mountain of them, and I love them, and I relax by reading books about political theory, political history, and political autobiographies. So I bought this, not intending to, to approach Isaac. It's one of many books that I buy every week and just think, oh, that looks interesting. I started reading it, and it is this thing is like crack. I'm just, it is so addictive. It's one of the best-written books I've ever read. It's so well written. And it's, you know what I love about it as well? It's a big book, but it's so written. You're like, oh man, this is great. So well written. I mean, because then you're like, what a treat. It's like having a great box set in your hand. And if you are a fan of uh, the Rawnsley books about New Labour or the Shipman books about the Conservative government, this is in that scene. It is so good. So I got him on. I just thought, I need to talk to this guy. And just as he is a fantastic writer, he's also a fantastic speaker. And this is a, a brilliant, uh, especially the inside story of how the Democrats go from Obama via the Clinton defeat to Biden's victory and all the elements of that. Um, so why Biden ends up and how Biden ends up being the candidate, why some of the other candidates didn't cut through in the same way. Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Michael Bloomberg. We talk about a couple of those individually. Um, the perennial issue of Bernie Sanders and his relationship with the Democrat Party, where I mean, it's called battle for the soul, where the soul of the Democrat Party is and what Trump does next. Um, it mainly focuses on the Democrats. And what's really the opening chapters are so gripping because it deals with 
Obama's relationship with the Democrats and Obama's role or otherwise in the Democrat defeat of 2016 to Donald Trump. So I began by asking Isaac, how, how much responsibility Obama should actually bear for the 2016 defeat to Donald Trump? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. And uh, I, uh, there, there are a few Britishisms that I like more than cracking. And to hear that, <laughs> <is> the... <laughs> well, there you go. Welcome to Britain. It's worth it in, in itself. Um, uh, the uh, so yeah, the the early chapters of the book uh, deal a lot with how uh, the Democratic Party got to the state that it was that uh, allowed Trump to win. How. Uh, politics got to, to where it was, uh, but a lot of it has to do with Obama. And, you know, there's a part in the book where uh, Obama is, re- he, he would say to people after Clinton lost and people were saying, oh, like these are the things that went wrong. He would say, well, you know, all these things were wrong. Well, I would have won. And, and in a way, that's the point. That, that's the problem is that Obama was a, an absolutely unique figure in, uh, in political history, I think anywhere around the world, certainly in American politics, uh, and was able to succeed because of things particular to him. And you can justify the lack of attention that he had to building up Democrats politically by saying, look, he came in, there was the international economic crisis, there were all the things that he was doing, doing all the work of being president, you know, whether it was trying to figure out America's relationship to Asia and China and, uh, or trying to reconfigure uh, the healthcare system in the States, whatever it may be. But an essential part of a political leader's job, certainly in America, is building up that person's political party. Uh, and if you look at what happened to the Democratic Party over the eight years that he was in power, uh, he came in at a really good moment for Democrats. Uh, there were, uh, at the time that he came in, uh, the House of Representatives was majority Democrat, the Senate was majority Democrat. Uh, it had uh, almost a wide majority, it had 60 votes in the end uh, for Democrats uh, by the middle of 2009. Uh, the, there were uh, the majority of governors of states around the country were Democrats. By the time that he leaves, the House is Republican, the Senate is Republican, the majority of governors are Republican. Uh, there are seats in various state legislatures around the country. There are almost a thousand seats that were held by Democrats when they came in had flipped to be Republican seats. There are a lot of factors that uh, go into that, but it is just with those kinds of numbers, it's just undeniable that there was a failure uh, to, to tend to the politics, to tend to the bench. Uh, for the Democratic Party that was there. And I'll tell you, you enjoy those chapters. Uh, There are a number of uh, people around the former president who did not enjoy what I wrote there, Um, but uh, most people in the Democratic Party now look at this and say like, yeah, that is what happened. And I've gotten a lot of comments from people saying like, I'm glad that you finally like assessed what happened there. And, just on those uh, allies of his and, and former colleagues of his, people who have worked with him closely, you might not be too keen on what you said. Is it that they just don't like it or do they dispute your version? Um, well, as politicians uh, tend to do and certainly political operatives tend to do, 
it's that they don't like it and so they dispute the version (laughs) 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 um but again like i think some of it just comes down to the hard figures there right that there was something that that went wrong there politically. And by the way, it's not just about party building. One of the things that I get into in the book is that they're uh, obviously uh, around the world. uh, And as you're very well aware in Britain, there is this um, populist strain that uh, that has picked up and that's a reaction to changes in society and technology and all these things that are going on. And there is definitely a thread. It's not a, it's not a rope, but it's a thread that ties together Brexit and Trump's election, for example, right? Uh, and, and so you can't say like Obama could have just dealt with that. But one of the things that they were always struggling with uh, in the, the Obama White House was how to make people feel like they were not being left out of the economy. How to make people feel like they're not working harder and making less, right? Uh, and this, what I, the way that I describe it in the book, and since we're on a podcast, I'll just use the, the curses that I use in the book, um, is that like it was this general feeling that people had of being fucked, right? Of like, okay, th- there, there is uh, the people, all these bankers and like the Wall Street types or whatever who got bailed out by the government after the crash, and they're making massive bonuses again. And they're still living in their mansions and nobody seems to have suffered. And then you have the government helping out people, you know, saying, oh, we want to raise uh, the minimum wage. We want to do all these things. And this huge group of people in the middle, but it's not like the middle, the middle, like 10%. It's the middle, like, I don't know, 40% people who just felt like nobody's doing anything for me. I can't pay the mortgage on my house. I can't afford to send my kids to school. I can't go on vacation. Who's looking out for me? And Obama struggled to do something to, to uh, account for that. And I, I write in the book about how like ever, before uh, basically every State of the Union speech that he gave, he would sit there and think like, what do we, how do we talk about this? How do we, what do we do to, to propose a solution to it, to uh, wage stagnation, all these things. And, and they never figured it out. And sure enough, what that does is it creates a resentment and an, an anger that if you look at 2016, who are the successful candidates? The, the phenomenon candidates are Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, two people who are speaking to the same thing, saying, you are getting fucked and I'm angry about it, right? And the, in the end, uh, obviously Sanders wasn't the Democratic nominee, but that, that message was so powerful for Trump uh, that it carried him through uh, what was, um, I think most people would agree, including uh, most people who worked on the Trump campaign, at least in honest moments, that it, like, it wasn't a great, like it wasn't a masterful operation. There were some things that it did, obviously online that were amazing and very innovative uh, and innovative maybe, like it's not a, a good or a bad word there. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, it, it was things like uh, the Russian interference in the election or uh, what the Trump campaign did on Facebook or uh, other, uh, other elements that ended up benefiting Trump um, helped him a little bit, each one a little bit and created this, you know, the cliche perfect storm in American politics that allowed him to win. But if he hadn't been speaking to something visceral 
that people felt, then he wouldn't have been able to get to that point where all those things helped tip him over the edge. So there's a number of things I want to deal with Obama. One is the way that he managed the country. The other is the way that he managed the politics of the party and the legacy that he left on his way out of the White House with the DNC. Just on the politics of the country then. Firstly, if Obama, if presidents were allowed to stand for as many terms as they like, would he have beaten Trump? It's a hard, like, the, the hypotheticals are hard. I think the answer is probably yes. Um, but I guess what I would say to you is that I think Trump's nomination, that he that he's even the Republican candidate, has a lot to do with people feeling like Hillary Clinton was going to win. Um, so let's just kind of see what happens here. It's okay. And also the particular reaction to her as like, you could not put together someone who was more of a status quo uh, embodiment, right? She was the heir essentially to two presidencies, her husband's and then Obama's, right? Uh, she had been around in American politics for as long as most people could remember, right? She comes onto the political scene in 1991 when her husband is uh, first running uh, for, for president. Uh, it's a long time. She's just part of the fabric of America and people who, again, like this is part of what ties together all around the world. It's people who, and, and not just in politics, but in every, in, in every aspect of society, uh, we're doubting our institutions. We're questioning, should things go in the same way? And say, okay, this person captures all of it. I know she's a woman and that would have been historic, right? But aside from that, she captures everything about the way things are and have been for a really long time. And then you have Donald Trump, who's, basic pitch and boil it down was like i'm angry about this you're getting screwed and let's just do it completely different let's throw things up right and, and one of the things that i report about in the book is they go uh, a bunch obama sends a bunch of his aides to iowa to do some focus groups uh after the 2016 election is done and trump has won because they're all trying to figure out what happened and they ask uh these people in iowa who voted for Obama twice and then for Donald Trump in 2016, right? um, which seems like, how could that be, right? <laughs> to a lot of people. But there were a bunch of voters who voted like this. They said, what is it? And, and one of the women who speaks up says, I voted, it, he's the same thing. I, I sent Obama there because I want to change. And then they wouldn't let him do it. So now we need someone like Trump to go in and essentially do it more uh, aggressively, right? Uh, I was going to use the word violently, but I don't want to connect it to what happened ultimately this past January, because it's not with everything. They were just say this guy is, is the point is he's going to go break things, uh, br break some furniture and, 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 and shake things up. And, and one of the interesting aspects of the, the four years of Trump is every time that there would be uh, on uh, in the, the, newspapers or on cable news people saying like oh he's broken all these norms he's doing it. and and a lot of you know the, the <laughs> fainting couches were used and <laughs> um, uh, and a lot of that was spot on but to many people who voted for trump they were saying that is exactly why i voted for this guy that's why because look how much he's upsetting these people who are in charge Talk about the, the thread, if not a rope, that, that connects Brexit, Trump and, and other global political phenomenons in the last five or six years. These things, when they're successful, particularly in Britain and America, have been on the right. When Jeremy Corbyn captured the leadership of the Labour Party, he was not popular out there in the country. 
Boris Johnson was able to weaponize a form of populism different to Trump's, but nevertheless, you're right, that sort of thread from Brexit to Trump. Are right-wing populists uh, more likely to succeed in countries like Britain and America than left-wing ones? It certainly seems so. I mean, I look, I can't speak to British politics. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's a confusing thing for me. <laughs> uh, you should listen to this podcast more regularly. I, 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 even as I've tried to keep up and just like uh, a lot of Brits like following American politics, a lot of Americans like following British politics. Uh, but uh, I don't know. It's, it's like something, I, I guess, because, you know, from when we're, little children taught about like the difference between the presidency and Congress. It's always like, so the guy who's like in charge of parliament is in charge of the whole country. <laughs> That's basically it. Yeah. Even fundamentally, right? Like, and, and like the, the <laughs> so it, it, it's, it, uh, it, it's an, it, it's its own thing. Right. Um, but in America, uh, I think that you see, <laughs> Donald Trump, before he ran for president, before he started running, uh, uh, was someone whose politics didn't fit into an easy box of a Democrat or Republican. And in fact, he'd given money to a lot of Democrats and Republicans, and he seemed to have uh, positions that were either in line with each of the parties and some that were out of whack with both the parties. Uh, then when he decided to run, he chased this, it's not even populist, it was a nativist thing that, uh, that he saw that there was a need for, and that connected with some things that he'd always believed. If you go back to the 80s, you see him talking about how like we have to get Japan out of the way or like, you know, um, and, but I don't think, I'm pretty sure that if that, you, you said to Donald Trump, could you sit down and like write out your political philosophy? He would, no, like, he wouldn't be able to do that. Um, is he an authoritarian? Like he's got things that sort of connect with that, but I, like he hasn't thought through it in a way that, uh, that like Victor Orban has or whatever. Um, but what you do see uh, in polling, and I, I, I don't know if this is true in the exact numbers in Britain, but I've, it's true in America and I've, I know it tracks roughly like this around the world. Say to people, um, like, would you be okay with a dictatorship or an authoritarian? Uh, uh, and you regularly get like 20-ish percent of people who say, yeah, they'd be fine with that, right? Like in democracies. And I think that what we have seen is that that 20% in America seems to vote Republican, right? Um, and uh, that what, and so that gets talked about as in some ways as populism because it's that nativist authoritarian way. But I'm not sure that that's populist exactly. Right, uh, and if you look at some of the policy that that happened, uh, the the tax cuts that Trump uh, signed at the end of 2017 that were probably the biggest part of his domestic agenda that he got through, they're not populist. They gave money to rich people and corporations. Uh, so I think it's a misnomer to call him a populist. Um, a nativist, uh, the, for sure, um, and and plugged into this uh, desire that people have to have like a great leader. He obviously uh, like a 
the great man stuff, the right? Like, and he's stuff. always right. Like, but but like he he he's long before he ever cared about politics. He wanted to be the guy, right? Yeah. Like when he was just a developer in New York, and I grew up in New York City. Like he was part of my life. Like he was in the paper on TV. Like why nobody really knew, but because he wanted to be the guy that everybody paid attention to, and that connects. So like that's the strong man part of him, but not the part again, like where you look at, you see like Victor Orban has definitely had a plan about what to do, right? Trump has never had that plan. <laughs> well, I wonder, I guess what I was trying to get at was you mentioned those two change candidates, Trump and Bernie, and it ends up being Hillary versus Trump instead. Obviously Hillary wins the popular vote, but would, would Bernie have stood a better chance, do you think, given the mood in America at that time? You know, the, the, this is the, the great hypothetical. And uh, there were for a long time, including during the 2020 campaign, Bernie supporters who had like Bernie would have won, you know. And, um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't I've, it's hard to see. Would Bern, a, a Sanders Trump race in 2016 would have been really weird. Um, and the electoral <laughs> map would have been scrambled in a way uh, that we're not used to. So maybe that, but I don't think it's as clean as saying like, for sure, he would have won. And I think he would have been more vulnerable in ways that um, that never were tested really. And that you saw starting to get tested as he surged at the, big, at the end of the 2020 primary race, when all of a sudden people were saying like, so you thought, you think things work well in Cuba? Um, and, and what do you, like socialism, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, when those are things that are just talked about within uh, the context of supporters and a primary campaign, it's very different from having it hashed out uh, for the country at large. And, and you, you see just how much discomfort there is in America right now with uh, talk about uh, socialism, uh, whether it's democratic socialism or just, yeah, and the Republicans have left on it and you know, the, the the number one best-selling book in America right now is titled American Marxism, which like nobody even knows what that means exactly. Um, but it's by a right-wing commentator who's you know attacking what they've caricatured the left into being. Um, uh, but uh, in the summer of 2019, Sanders gave a speech that was, I'm forgetting the exact title of it, but it was like social democratic socialism in America and like how, like what it means now or something like that. And I did an article where I went around to a bunch of the candidates, uh, including Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and said, Bernie Sanders just announced he's giving this speech next week. Like, what do you make of it? And they were like, no, that's not what it is. <laughs> and, and in fact, like I got, I caused some trouble with that article just off of one line and that I mentioned that when I brought it up to Warren, she kind of chuckled at the title of the speech. Uh, and people said, no, she's not laughing at socialism. And like, she was, right? She was saying, because she was like, she's not a socialist. She's very much capitalist. Um, she just thinks capitalism should work very differently. Uh, and, um, and so, I don't know. I don't, and I, to fast forward to now, uh, Bernie Sanders, a, a lot of people around Bernie Sanders believe he would have won against Trump last year. I think that's a hard argument to make for sure. Um, now that we saw how it went. Um, uh, so I'm not, I'm not convinced he would have won in 16 or 20. Just to return to Obama then, and the things that he could have done in office, policy-wise, delivering for America that might have prevented a Trump victory. 
You kind of hinted it in those early chapters. But do you think he should have been bolder? I mean, allies close to him might say he was trying to be bold, you know, trying to get Obamacare was through was a nightmare with the numbers that they had in the House. You, you couldn't have expected him to do anything else bold. He, he wouldn't have been able to get it through. I think that there was a failure from Obama and the people around him to sell his agenda. Um, so yes, realistically, legislatively, what could he have gotten done? I'm not sure. Uh, they're all that much more, just given the factors that were at play there. And um, to speak frankly about it, as I think we should, uh, there's a lot of inherent, uh, unrecognized resistance to a black man who was in charge at that point. Uh, and that, that's not there, for example, for Biden in the same way. Um, and, uh, but I, I do, refer, I'll reference another old article that I wrote, uh, and this would have been in 2013. And I believe the lead of it was, uh, Barack Obama has never sold the American people on anything other than himself. And it's true, like he was so successful in getting him, his own candidacy forward and making this uh, breakthrough and, and amazing, was the first black man to be elected president, all, all this stuff. But he was not as skilled or as invested in pushing his own successes uh, in office. And uh, when they changed the healthcare system to Obamacare, they did not, they let it be the way that the Republicans attacked it in the framing and the discourse. Uh, and you see, fast forwarding again to now, the way that Joe Biden is trying to learn from that and excuse me, and talk about things differently. Uh, and we'll see whether that works, but for sure, Biden and his aides are very uh, cognizant of the lessons of, of the Obama days and, and thinking, so, for example, uh, the, the, there started to be uh, in July, and it'll be ongoing for a bunch of months, something called the, the child tax credit, um, which is uh, upwards of $600 for children that uh, it's not for everybody $600, but that hits, uh, I don't remember what the numbers are, but I think it's like 80% of American households with children. Uh, and uh, that is money that's just showing up in bank accounts, a couple hundred dollars every month. Right? Wow. I mean, like, that's just good politics, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but it's only good politics if you remind people of why that's there. Um, and that, uh, that it's there uh, from a bill that passed in the spring that had zero Republican votes in the House or the Senate for it. Uh, and the Democrats have started to think, how do we uh, put this message out in a way that'll break through? one might argue that they should have started to figure that out already before the money started arriving. <laughs> um, but, but they're working on it and we'll see how successful they are in, in saying to people, this money that you have is there because of the Democratic Party and because of Joe Biden. And Obama's legacy with the party then, this phrase benign neglect gets used in the book. Yeah. Is, is it fair to characterize him as actually being quite uninterested about what followed uh, and not being that bothered about the state of the party? He's a guy who came up against the party apparatus uh, in his whole career. Uh, and um, and so he just never thought of, of investing in it that much. And he thought that other things were more important. Um, again, 
you it's hard to say to like it's not like he thought that playing golf was more important he thought that trying to <laughs> like <laughs> figure out that what they would always refer to as the pivot to asia was more important of like figuring out uh how what obamacare really looked like was more important but the the lesson that has been taken from this by Biden certainly and by and by a lot of Democrats is you have to do both more. Otherwise, okay, you're gonna go do all these things and it's all very nice, but then the other guys are gonna keep on going and they're just gonna win the elections next time and then you're finished. And they can undo the stuff that you did in office. You know, this is exactly. looking after the party helps you secure your legacy. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so someone said to me, uh, yesterday, a relatively high-ranking Democrat I was sitting with said to me that part of the Obama legacy is not uh, is that Hillary Clinton didn't win, right? Um, because that that's part of his job is to get the next person elected. Um, and this person said, you can look at it and say whatever else you want to say about Ronald Reagan, like he did his job in helping get George H. W. Bush elected. Bill Clinton did not do his job exactly with uh, getting Al Gore like this. There were a lot of complications there. Some of the that Gordon won Clinton anywhere near it, um, and uh, right, like that's that's the job of a two-term president: is get the next person in. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So let's talk about some of those other candidates then. Obviously, Biden gets the nomination yeah. in the end and wins the White House. There were so many other people being talked about, and it must be very exciting watching it from the UK. It must be more exciting being there. You kind of get this festival of politics, really, where all these candidates of different levels of experience and profile throw their hat into the ring. Some of the names that were getting talked about early on, just get your opinion on why they didn't make it to the end or why they weren't successful. Let's start with Pete. Buttigieg. Why was he ultimately yeah. unsuccessful? I mean, he, he was successful. Let's start with why he was successful. He's successful because he is great at framing ideas in uh, the mind, like on camera and on microphone. He, he knows how to get himself across in an appealing way. And, and people look at him and they say, like, he's smart. He's with it. He is extremely smart. Um, and he's really, really good at the, the stuff that he does. Um, but he's 38 years old or was then, he's, I guess he's 39 now. Um, he was the mayor of a small town in Indiana, um, of a hundred thousand people, South Bend of Indiana. Uh, and it was hard for people to get all the way there to think, uh, 
okay, I'm excited about him. I like him. He, uh, but could he really be the one to take on Trump? Is he really going to be the one who could convince the voters who they, the, the swing voters or the voters that had drifted away from the Democratic Party to say like, okay, you've got this guy here. Now, of course, his argument was like, well, Barack Obama did it, right? And he was a little bit older, but also young, um, a first-term senator, but two years in the Senate. Before that, he'd been a state senator, you know, also not an important position. Uh, I think, though Pete Buttigieg is very talented, Barack Obama is even more talented, right, um, politically and uh, just speaking at arenas and, you know, all that sort of, sort of stuff. Um, and uh, a big part of the question in almost every voter's mind, in almost every primary voter's mind, was could this person beat Trump? And uh, so not do I like his or her politics, um, but could this person be Trump? And by that, could this person win over these people in Michigan? Or they were all, everybody became a pundit in American politics, right? And so <laughs> they were, okay, well, so in that county, could... <laughs> um, That's the rational and, way to approach it. Political parties don't always do that. Uh, yeah, although like, it's the rational way to approach it if you're working with a full set of information. If you're uh, just sort of guessing at uh, the way that things went, then... Uh, you know, and, and okay, well, I read this one article. I uh, read a bunch of Facebook posts about this. And <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um, and, and someone said to me, someone who ran for president said to me that in American politics, um, every, the way the campaigns work is every job is like a job interview, right? For, for mayor, for governor, for senator. And what have you done? You look at the resume, essentially say, okay, I, I can see that fit there. And that president is different um, because uh, it tends to be like, how do you feel? What's in your gut, right? Uh, and, um, and that I think you see played out in all of recent American elections uh, and has a lot to do with why we are able to reasonably in America talk about things like uh, the Eisenhower era or the Clinton years, or whatever, that it's something bigger than just who the president is. It represents something about it in a way that I'm not sure, like it's sort of for British politics, like the Thatcher years seem like that it's that, but like, I don't know, would, would are, is it like the Blair years in the same kind of way? You know, like- I think for those two- Maybe a little bit. You pick the maybe, right two because they ruled two. for right. a, a decent amount of time. So I think they are the two post-war prime ministers that people do think about. Yeah, because it, but but uh, like nobody's thinking like, oh well, the John Major years, you know, like uh, <laughs> not in the same way. No, no, he's kind of <laughs> yes, I, I take um, the point. <laughs> but I do think for the most part, you'll see that about American presidents, certainly uh, any two-term American president, right? Um, and. Um, uh, and so Buttigieg, to come back to your question, I think was plugging into some of what people wanted, but not all of what people wanted. And ultimately that, uh, that, that hesitation was there when it got to voters beyond the, the most plugged in Iowa voters who obviously he won the Iowa caucuses. Michael Bloomberg's a fascinating character, someone who's been mayor of New York for both parties and uh, obviously yeah. a highly successful individual. Um, but his attempt to effectively buy the nomination really 
crashed and burned. Um, and what's really interesting about that is you think, well, highly political experience, has this amazing uh, business career. But for some reason, uh, maybe I'm wrong, and I was obviously watching this from a, from a distance, you seem to lack a, a, a real sense of presence and a, and a sense of fight. You think, well, if anyone's going to have the sort of energy, it's going to be this guy, this dynamic private sector guy who's done all this stuff and run New York. I mean, maybe his time had passed, but what was your impression of uh, his I, I, mean, uh, I, I attempt? I started out covering politics in New York City uh, and when he was mayor. And he was never dynamic. Uh, that was not his pitch, right? He was, um, he's got a kind of croaky voice. Um, um, he's, he's shorter and does not, he has the presence in a room of like, he's got a big ego on him and a lot of it well-earned. Um, because how many people have created an $80 billion fortune from nothing. Um, but not the kind of magnetism that, uh, and again, having, I was trying not to sound obnoxious about this, but I've been a reporter covering this, not the magnetism that you get off of Obama or Trump or, uh, or Biden uh, or a lot of other people who were not successful as president. But um and his, he was a technocrat when he was mayor. People liked him because he just kind of got things to happen, the, the city to function. Uh, and he never had to do a lot of the things that uh, you'd think of as political requirements uh, because he spent a lot of money in New York City to get elected, somewhere between 80 and $100 million each time. Um, each time, <laughs> so oh, uh, he put it all together as somewhere north of two hundred and fifty million dollars between his three races for mayor, um, and then uh, they were going to uh, run the same approach for the presidential campaign. The title, the chapter in the book about him is a billion dollars for Samoa because he spent over a billion dollars and then wins the primary in American Samoa, which. Um, even though you're not an American uh, sitting here uh, in the midst of American politics, you know quite well that that doesn't get you very far. Uh, <laughs> it's not that impressive to win the American Samoa primary. Uh, and the, there are two things as a point in the book that happen there. Number one, you're seeing that like you can almost buy an election, almost, right? You can sort of buy your way into contention, certainly. And if a couple more things had broken his way, uh, then he could have been there, right? But you also see that candidates matter and that he was the wrong candidate um, in just about every way for the Democratic Party, right? Um, you've got a guy who uh, was, uh, uh, came off of Wall Street, uh, had a lot of problems with women. Uh, his, the end of his time as mayor was marked by uh, problems uh, with uh, African-Americans in New York and people feeling like his police uh, department had been abusive to them, uh, that uh, he, he uh, is divorced, he's not very charismatic. It's, like, it's exactly the wrong fit for the Democratic Party. And the only reason why it was ever a thing is because Biden was weak for the time that he was there, uh, the, 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 he, for the time that Bloomberg came in. And then Bloomberg comes in and uh, in a completely ironic way, papers over the time where Biden would, if left to his own devices, probably would have like been finished. But because the attention shifts to Bloomberg as the alternative, 
Biden has this tiny little bit of a cocoon of safe space to recover just enough to get back in contention, and then Bloomberg collapses, and Biden's able to to jump up them. But I like there's he, Bloomberg is the only candidate who did not do uh, well in any way, uh, who gets a, a chapter in the book, uh, and who is a significant uh, presence because of that chapter, because. I, it, it's really weird when I sat down and looked at the race overall it, that without him there, he played this integral role of a guy who came nowhere close to any of it. But, he, like, but if not for him, I, it's one of these pieces that fit together that made it so that Biden w- was able to win the nomination. And you follow this closely. You've been around these people. Was Bloomberg heartbroken by the experience did he genuinely think he could win it is the guy deluded uh, i mean what sort of state was he in once it was obvious he was out um so bloomberg from when he was running for mayor had used to have this line where he'd say like my plan b is better than everybody else's plan a by which he meant like oh, look at all the houses I have. <laughs> 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 um, uh so that's this part of it uh Look, he has accomplished everything that he ever wanted to in life, except for being president. Uh, and uh, and so he wanted to be president. He thought he could be president. He thought he should be president. He thought he'd do a good job. Uh, and he was angry that it didn't work out. He was sort of angry with himself a little bit. Um, and uh, it, he, he was grumpy about it for a long time. Uh, and including um, um, uh, that when he had had a conversation with Chuck Schumer, the leader of the Democrats in the Senate, and he thought that Schumer might endorse him in the presidential race, and Schumer didn't. And then Bloomberg gives lots of money in the end to Democratic efforts uh, <laughs> last year after he lost, uh, north of $100 million. Uh, and he gives no, not a penny to any Democrat running for Senate. And of course, the people who work for Bloomberg say, oh, no, no, no. It's, 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 he thought that they were covered in other ways. He was the best. No, he, they, they, he essentially has endless money. So it's not like he couldn't have given 10 million more dollars. to. He, he didn't want to. He was, he was mad at Schumer and he was uh, pissy about it. And, uh, and they, they haven't gotten over that. What about Elizabeth Warren? Because she's someone who has the ability to really cut through. Some of her social media stuff is really good. She can fashion really sort of punchy statements. What, why didn't she do better? Um, because, um, because in the end, there was... Uh, some of it was probably about sexism, but uh, there was also... She she never captured the the hearts of people uh, in enough of a way and enough of the hearts of the progressive wing of the party. Uh, if only she had run instead of she and Sanders running, uh, I think she probably would have had a much better shot at the nomination. If when Bernie Sanders, we forget that he had a, a heart attack uh, in uh, was it late September or early October of 2019, if Sanders had decided to pull out at that point, which would have been a 
reasonable decision for a 78 year old candidate who had a heart attack to make. Um, uh, then, um, then it probably would have helped her a lot. But she was, in the end, I think people felt like she was trying to have it a little too cute. Um, there was this big argument through uh, the campaign uh, about creating what Bernie Sanders called Medicare for All, a fully uh, socialized healthcare system in America. It's something that could never actually pass into law because of the other dynamics uh, in Congress. Um, but um, Warren signed on to it because she thought she had to do it politically. And then she went around telling that her whole campaign was built around this theme. I have a plan for that. This is my plan. Here's how I'm going to do it. And she never ex explained what her plan was to pay for this massive overhaul to the healthcare system or how it would work. And when and she again then got attacked for it. I thought you had a plan for everything, right? Uh, and when she finally came out and made a plan, it like it felt not real to people and like that. So it's all these things sort of crashing together. I mean, part of what I tried to do in the book is to make it clear that there aren't like stop and start moments of a campaign or there isn't just the one thing that goes wrong or the one thing about someone. It's all these interlocking pieces that all come together. And, and Warren is a big part of, a lot. there are a lot of interlocking pieces with Warren uh, as there are with how the overall story of how it went, gets to Biden. But uh, I, I warned uh, folks, uh, the people around her and she herself believed that if they had been able to make the argument in the primary about um, a wealth tax charging millionaires, it just, she would, she calls it like her two cent millionaires tax that after $50 million in income, which is more than I make a year. I don't know about you, Matt. Uh, <laughs> no comment. I don't know how the podcast space is uh, treating you. <laughs> but uh, even translated into pounds. Uh, but uh, that it would be two cents on every dollar forward from, from that. Uh, and that's populism, to go back to what you were saying before, right? And they feel like if she had been able to make that the conversation instead of Medicare for All, she would have been more successful. Uh, and I think that they are right. And I also think that there would have been a better chance of that happening, even though that in itself would have some trouble getting passed into law. But like, it, it, it's a much, that's, that's a specific thing. And she had laid out a plan how you would uh, do that and what you would spend the money on and how much you could do in America for, it sounds crazy that there's that much money for two cents on incomes over $50 million a year. But there are apparently a lot of people who are making a lot more than $50 million a year. Where's the center of gravity in the politics of the Democrat Party now? Um, it'd be easy to look at Biden in the White House and say, well, this is uh, the Democrats are, are on the center left and they managed to stave off the threat from Bernie Sanders. But we see the squad, people like AOC and Ilhan Omar are, are prominent and they're popular with large sections of the country. Uh, is the DNC settled in a center left position or, or, or is there a is there a perhaps more of a, a pull to a more left wing position happening within the party? I mean, I think that uh, the trap that a lot of people fall into, with no offense, Matt, is to look at Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and say, oh, there's this huge left-wing push in the party. The, the reality is that if you start looking at the elected officials, you can't go too much past the two of them. You can go some, 
with and list them in the same group. I, I'll give you a couple more. Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, Jamal Bowman, right? Okay. Mondaire Jones, the new congressman also that one. Uh, keep going. It gets harder, right? <laughs> and in fact, towards the end of the book, uh, there's this uh, moment where uh, it's after the election and uh, there is a protest outside of the DNC headquarters in favor of the Green New Deal, which um, as I point out in the book is is not a it's not a piece of legislation. It's a resolution that basically says like, we need to change how we're thinking about all this stuff, right? And do more on climate change, which is admirable, but it would need to be a lot different by the time that it would get signed into law. And they go, uh, all the members of the squad uh, go outside of the uh, DNC headquarters, which in December was uh, completely shuttered still from COVID. So there's nobody inside the headquarters that they're protesting. It was a good backdrop. And Ilhan Omar speaks there. And she says uh, that her district had the highest turnout of any congressional district. And that colleagues have been coming up to her and saying, Ilhan, how do we do it? Ilhan, how do we get this? And I say to them, what you need to do is give people something to believe in. And when they have that, then they'll turn out to vote. Or you have Joe Biden as the candidate. Well, but here's the trick of it, right? She's right that her district had the highest turnout of any congressional district in the country. What she didn't mention is that it also had the highest drop-off from people voting for Joe Biden and any congressional district in the country. By the way, it seems like, not just in 2020, in history, that district is the district where George Floyd was killed. George Floyd was killed in her district in a state in Minnesota that we thought would be a swing state. In the end, it was not so close, but Trump wanted to win Minnesota at one point, that was part of their plan. So Omar's analysis of this is right, that you have to give people something to believe in. And she did for her voters, she did clearly, Uh, but it seems like people were actually more responding to Joe Biden, right? Now, some of that is they were voting against Trump, Right. But you see this all over the country in almost every congressional district or Senate race, whatever, where there were where Joe Biden was on the, the, the same ballot as another candidate. Joe Biden got more votes. OK, so some of those people vote in presidential elections more. Some of it is Donald Trump. But it also seems to be that people were responding to him and his brand, which doesn't necessarily mean his political ideology, but that's part of it more than they were to the Democratic Party. And that is a problem for the Democrats going forward, right? Because whatever happens in the these midterms elections that are coming next year, Biden's not on the ballot. Trump is not on the ballot. So what does it look like then? In 2024, Biden says he's gonna run again. Let's see, I, you know, he, he really means it right now, but a lot can happen in years. And that's, I, the lesson from 2016 for me was don't make predictions about politics, but, um, can can that hold for him, with him there in 2024? If he's not there, can it hold without him there? That's a really, really deep thing for, uh, for democratic politics and, and democratic politicians trying to figure out. And it, to come back to how we started on this, it, it, this is about ideology in a lot of ways. And it is about people saying, a lot of voters saying, I don't know about some of this stuff. I don't know about socialism. I don't know about like defund the police. It's uh, making me a little uncomfortable. 
right? Uh, and and, um, and 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 then. Uh, there, some voters are saying, no, we have to go more aggressively and turn out our people more. And if we can do that, then it's okay. We'll be able to push through these voters who we're going to lose anyway, because they're just drifting over. That's the argument that's going on right now. Well, it's an argument that's existed on the left for a while. You know, the logic that you um, win elections by targeting voters who don't vote is is one that uh, I guess uh, Brexit might, and, and Trump might to some extent say, well, you can find candidates, yep. you can find issues that will bring out people that have never voted before, but it's probably quite rare and it doesn't seem yet to have been it done on the left in quite the same way. So what was the ultimately the appeal to Biden then, to the party in the country? What made him the most successful candidate? I think it's a couple of things. Um, he had... Uh a connection to voters emotionally that is impossible to replicate, uh, that was there somewhat uh, ironically, but in an unfortunate way in the way that I'm sure he would trade if he could. But when his son died in 2015, his son Bo, it brought, people back to the, the story of what happened to him initially where he's elected to the Senate at 30 uh, or 29. It's not even quite 30 when he's elected. Uh, and it's this amazing story. And then a couple of weeks after that is this terrible car crash. Right? I mean, like the story would be out of a novel, right? His wife was driving to get a Christmas tree and was hit by a truck driver. The wife and the baby daughter are killed. The two sons, one of them is Bo, the other one Hunter, uh, who are injured and are in the hospital for a long time. And then he has to become a single father and he almost quits the Senate. And so when when Bo died in 2015 in the tragic way he did of brain cancer, it, it created this sense in people's minds of this is this tragic figure. This is someone that I can see my own grief in. And Biden has always been this, it, it, there is no one that I have seen in politics who is a retail politician like he is, who can sit in a restaurant or a, you know, a train car or wherever, and he'll just, he loves it. And people love him. It I've seen it in so many different places, the connection that's there. And that's what politicians need, right? Uh, to, to have. In, in a basic way, people feel that connection, but but it was especially important, I think, in the period of grief, societal grief that we were going through and still are going through because of COVID uh, and people feeling they could find that connection with him. And there are a lot of moments in the book where you see that coming out in little uh, ways, uh, voters who just feel that. Um, he had a connection to black voters because he had been Obama's vice president that was essential and that floated him even after uh, <laughs> when, when basically any other kind of voter was turning away from him. Uh, he had that support that never wavered among black voters that kept him at 10, 15% in the polls. When, <laughs> I mean, look, black voters, obviously they're just the same as any other voter. But it was amazing, like basically every other group would leave him and there would be the black voters that were left. <laughs> Um, and obviously, eventually, more came through. Um, he, some of it is the, his own politics and ideology, and people feeling like he was this way of uh, centering the party and not having it veer too far to the left. Um, which, in part, um, he benefited from 
at the end, the race coming down to him and Bernie Sanders and people, uh, a lot of voters saying like, eh, I'm not so comfortable with Bernie Sanders. I don't think he can win or whatever it was that drove them away from Sanders. And then they looked and they were like, well, I guess that leaves me with Biden, right? Because the other candidates had uh, fallen by the wayside. Uh, I think those are the main factors. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of name ID that he had because it's been around in politics forever. Uh, and, and, and then just thinking of him as really, he is as diametrically opposed to Donald Trump as a person could be who is also an old white guy, right? <laughs> like demographically, they are exactly the same, but in every other way, they're different. So that contrast helps. Um, a mixture of experience, likability, the right politics. Because superficially, you might say, well, and obviously the mood of the time is crucial because superficially you might say, well, Hillary Clinton, she'd been around a while. She had name recognition. She was perhaps seen as competent, even by people who didn't like her. But there's yep. something else about Joe Biden um, and where America was uh, in that second election uh, com compared to the first. Just looking ahead to the next one before we go. Trump um, was on Hannity a few weeks ago and he said he'd made his mind up about what he was going to do, but he didn't reveal what he was going to do. And I know predictions are difficult, and I know you gave them up after 2016, but <laughs> if he were to stand against Biden, if you get a rerun of that, how, do you, how would you see that going? And what's the likelihood of seeing that? Oh, so a couple of weeks after the, uh, the election in November, I was at an event that Kamala Harris was at. She was at that point already vice president-elect. I'm sorry long transition time in the States. It's another thing that's always weird to me in watching British politics, how quickly the campaign's going. That's like, it's like, you watch like, okay, well, they're out of 10 down and goodbye. Yeah, the removal <laughs> van is literally in the street carrying your stuff out. It's brutal here. And it, 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 it's always so funny in America where like the election happens and even this time where it was like that week where we were waiting for the election to get called. Um, but then it's like 10 more weeks yeah. <laughs> waiting. So it was the end of November and uh, it was right at that time where Trump was carrying on, uh, starting to carry on about um, the election doubts, but it, it was the reaction that most people were having to was, oh, well, it's been hard for him. And what harm could it do? Um, of course, we saw what harm it could do. Uh, and that was already clear, I think, to people who were paying attention. This was bad, even though we didn't know that there was going to be the riot in the, in the way that it was. And. Um, uh, and I, so Harris was at this event and she took a couple of questions from reporters and I said to her, so President Trump is making some noises like he might run again in 2024. Would you and President-elect Biden be ready to take him on again? And she looked at me and she goes, please. <laughs> Very like, come on, let's, this is like a stupid question. Like, There's a lot that went into that, please. Um, I, so like, I, I think that if it were a rematch, uh, Part of the problem that Donald Trump would have is that he lost a lot of support that he had in the suburbs uh, from 2016 to 2020. And I think that the way that he has carried on since um, has probably bled more of that support. Um, and uh, the, the uh, attack on the Capitol is uh, very searing. I know for people everywhere, but um, tell you, like in America, and it's the bar 
it's in all of my minds all the time because it was just it's hard to believe that it happened even you know, i was in i was walking around uh, in the capitol a couple days ago and just to think that this like in the, in this hallway where i'm just casually walking around where people coming screaming like hang mike pence and uh, yeah. um that said what i think uh was underappreciated by many people in the immediate aftermath of the riot was that uh, the Republican Party has gravitated so far more toward him than, uh, than it looked like it was going to, and that he has remained the absolute leader of the party uh, with uh, Republicans helping him retain that spot. So does that mean that he drives up his voters more? In a way, again, like we're working the hypothetical where he's running and he's running against Biden. Those are the two things that I think are the, the countervailing forces. Uh, and I think a lot of it will be determined by things that nobody can control, like the economy or, um, or, or variants and all this stuff. And if we're like, if two years from now we're still in lockdown, then obviously I think Joe Biden will have a problem politically. Um, I hope for, not for Joe Biden's sake, <laughs> but for our sake as a society that we are not. Um, um, uh, when we have these midterm elections next year and we see, do Republicans do well? Do Republicans who uh, connect with the Trump uh, style politics do well? Those are the sorts of things that'll start to influence what this actually looks like. It's possible, look, if you look forward and you see one scenario where uh, the Republicans who attach themselves to Donald Trump do really well in the midterm elections, then what that will do is say, like, actually, there's this real level of support for it, and there's a level of support for him, and it'll that would definitely encourage him to run uh, and uh, maybe be the, the, the first sign that there is a comeback coming. On the other hand, right, to, to do the journalist thing and do the on the other hand here, um, if there are a lot of Republicans who go for the Trumpist style politics and uh, and lose, and Democrats are able to hold on to their majorities and and push back on uh, the Trump stuff. Then the the rational thing that the Republican Party would do would be to start pushing away from him. Um, the Republican Party leaders at this point haven't been functioning in a completely rational way. So I'm not sure that that would be what would happen um, because usually when someone loses an election, the party moves on from them, right? Like George H.W. Bush, when he, who was the last incumbent president to lose, he didn't like, people were like, oh, we gotta keep doing what he says. Like, they were like, no, no more of that, right? <laughs> I mean, I was, like, it's not like after Gordon Brown lost, we were like, so what? We gotta keep him <laughs> like banished, right? <laughs> well, the Labour Party has a complicated relationship with victory defeats and whether it is prepared to move on for them, but that is perhaps a, sure. a conversation for another day. But like if, but but you know, Theresa May and, and Boris Johnson wouldn't have gotten the job they had if there was a, a real desire to hold on to politicians who don't do well, right? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever happens, Isaac, I guess the one positive is you'll be able to write the inside account of the next election. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, uh, I uh, there is there is not another book underway at the moment, although it does seem like uh, there is not going to be a quiet period ahead for American politics, which uh, for a political journalist is 
uh, positive news on <laughs> the employment front. Isaac, your book is absolutely superb. I hope this is the first of many inside stories of American elections and nomination races. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Man, thanks for having me. I loved every second of that, and that doesn't even barely scratch the surface of how good that book is. It is. I, I began by saying to Isaac, it might be pleasant that it was a cracking read, which um, I didn't really realise was such a Britishism. But uh, but there you go. The link to buy that book is, is in there. I, I'm just telling all my friends about it. It's a really good, particularly from afar, you know, because as much as I follow American politics, if you're not there, of course, there are bits you miss, the detail. You know, you get the sort of broader view from, uh, from afar, but this gives you the great detail. And it's just so well written. This could have been a really boring book because it's effectively, um, you know, it's all in chronological order. It's a, it's, a, it's a diary. It's not a retrospective. It's all written at the time. So it takes you through the, the nomination and, the, and then the election. That's just so gripping. I love it. Um, uh, and I, I read a lot of political books. I have found it quite hard to read during lockdown. I think that's changing now, now that things are opening up a bit and I find it easier to concentrate. There's a whole time during... Uh, the last year and a half, I couldn't concentrate enough to, uh, and I read another great book called Hammer of the Left by John Golding that um, Tom Harris, whose podcast you should listen to, uh, um, The Outsider, which is absolutely superb, the former Labour MP who has been on this show and is, uh, was a cracking guest. So I've got a few books on the go, but this one, and Hammer of the Left is great. It's about, um, well, you can, uh, I guess the title slightly gives it away, but um, it's called Tom Harris's podcast, by the way, it's called The Imposter, not The Outsider, forgive me. Um, but Hammer of the Left is written by John Golding, who's a Labour MP, and it's about how the Labour Party uh, overcame Militant and the inside story of that. So I'm really enjoying that. But Battle for the Soul by Isaac is, is a brilliant read. The other link in there as well, don't forget, is that Virgin Money giving page. Uh, from political party listener Jeremy Daubney. And if you do have a couple of quid uh, that you could uh, chuck his way for the Motor Neuron Disease Association and the Brain Tumor Charity in honour of uh, his mum and dad who sadly passed away, uh, then um, that would be a good a good use of time and money. Um, I have some, by the way, fantastic guests coming up in the next couple of weeks that I'm really excited about. People that I just think, I can't believe I haven't asked them on yet. Now, obviously, this is a weekly podcast, so that restricts me to roughly 50 guests a year. Well, 52, obviously. Um, I occasionally put out more than one a week, but actually that fit, that sounds like a lot. But when you think about how broad global politics is, it's not that many. But there's still loads of people. It's slightly embarrassing to approach eight years in. Um, but nevertheless, a couple of absolute corkers coming up, um, which I'm very excited about. So I shall leave you to it. I hope you're enjoying the Olympics. It's going well for Team GB so far, isn't it? Have a wonderful week and I'll see you soon. ta When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.